Hey, Magic Lantern listeners, there is no opening scene today, as this is our special year-end episode. It's the most wonderful time <laughs> of the year. It's not a Christmas episode. No, but it's the time when I get to talk about 500 choices. That's true. That makes you very happy. You don't have to sneak in extras, although I'm sure you're going to. Just wait for it. Instead of our usual opening scene, though, since we've gotten our musical number out of the way now as well, I just wanted to take a second before we do anything and say thanks for everything this year. This has been a really great year for the show. So thanks for listening. Thanks for telling people about it. Thanks for supporting the Patreon. We appreciate all of that. Are you ready to go? I am. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. We are at our special year-end episode. This is episode number 65. Why don't you tell them all about it? Well, it's that great time of year again. It's time for Ants in the Pants of 2017. This is our third annual Ants episode, and we've been planning all year for it. Our lists are composed of films we saw for the first time this year and made the biggest impressions on us. My list covers two terrific anthologies, one a trilogy, and the other a ten-film extravaganza. Well, my list covers a span of decades from the 1920s up till 1990. I only missed 1940 in this go-round. Did you cover a wide variety of time periods as well? I started in the 30s and got all the way through the 2010s period. The only decades I'm missing are the 80s and the early 2000s. We are also going to go all around the world, from America to France to Turkey to Russia and so much more. And I think you'll find that there are some titles that are classics and hopefully some little scene gems that you can track down. Well, that's what this episode is all about. That's what the show is all about. In fact, Discovery. And we've each chosen 10 films, or in your case, tens of 10 films. 115,000. That were our favorite things that we stumbled across or finally got to catch up with. And I've arranged mine in chronological order of release, so I'll just be going from the oldest to the newest. The same for me, and as you mentioned, I'm going to try to sneak in as many as I possibly can. As always, I had twice as many potential titles on the list as open spots, and I feel like part of my soul has been cut away with each title that I had to leave off, and I blame you, Cole Rolaine. If I didn't do that, this episode would be four hours long, or a multi-parter. I'm 100% fine with that. Well, so the episode isn't four hours long. How about we get started? I have the oldest one, so I have the honor of going first. First on my list is The Starfish from 1928, directed by Man Ray and starring Alice Prynne, better known as Kiki de Montparnasse. She was a model and artist herself and Man Ray's muse through this stretch of time as well. This is the oldest and possibly oddest film on my list. He was mostly known for his photography, but Man Ray worked in a variety of media. He wanted to be most known as a painter, and as a filmmaker, he made a number of these significant avant-garde short films. And that was a revelation for me, because I only knew him from photography. Of all the ones I've seen, I find this film of his to be the most striking. Often with experimental filmmakers, you can feel the exercise of it, but this does not feel that way. Did you think so? 
I'm in total agreement with you. And I think you may also be wary of that going off of the year that it was made because that that's still early days in cinema, but it doesn't feel like that. It does use a lot of techniques to distance you from the performers. There are shots through textured glass. There are broken mirrors, other devices that keep the faces obscured in some way or another, but it is all in service of a greater narrative rather than just one technique after another. It gives you fleeting impressions of a love triangle, hints of obsession, contemplation of alternate timelines. And especially for me, the reason why this made it onto the list, it brims with erotic energy that you don't find in his more formal experiments. And also, it's especially rewarding when viewed in juxtaposition with other films of the period, like you mentioned. Either Man Ray's other work for strict comparison purposes, or practically anything else from the time, so that you can feel the shock of going from more popular entertainments of the day to something like this that's operating completely without any of those considerations. It's available on YouTube if you're curious to see it, as are a number of his works. Myself, I have this on a beautiful set of avant-garde filmmaking from Kino. They put out three volumes of those. I think they're kind of pricey now because they're out of print, but if you are at all interested in the early days, especially of experimental film, they are well worth checking out. Our next selection in time is a shared choice, and this is the Marseille Trilogy, covering 1931, 1932, and 1936. The films are respectively Marius, directed by Alexander Corda, Fanny, directed by Marc Allegre, and César, directed by Marcel Pagnol, who conceived of this series. The anthology explores the connected lives and loves of a group of neighbors in the port town of Marseille. It is nothing short of an epic love story spanning decades in the lives of Marius, who dreams of a life at sea, his sweetheart Fanny, Marius's father, César, and César's best friend, Panisse, who wants to marry Fanny. It creates a love triangle that covers the very essence of life. Now, we each had a favorite selection, correct? Yes, I preferred César, and I think Fanny was yours, is that right? It was, so Fanny being the middle chapter, César being the final chapter. So poor Marius gets left out in the cold. To me, Marius, the first installment, felt like setting the table for what was to come. And I say that Fanny was my favorite, but that's really by a very small margin because there's no weak link in this series. I think it was her struggle and her decision at the center of this film that really tipped this over into my favorite. Cesar carried the most weight for me, I think, mostly because it seemed like it was necessary to have gone through all three films to finally feel the depth of satisfaction at the end of the entire experience. I wonder how much of my preference for it is actually because Pagnol directed it himself and finally the person who was responsible for it was able to get every nuance out of it onto the screen, do you think? I agree with you. And again, I want to say Fanny, my favorite by the smallest thread of a margin. I think overall, the best for me is to watch these friends and neighbors navigate their relationships with love and honesty an understanding at all times. And I also want to say, I'm going to bring this up with one of our later selections. I am so glad that there is no snake in the grass character in this. That's the thing for me. This is the thing I saw this year that may have ended up bringing me back from the brink of 2017. It's the most hopeful and human and warm and loving thing that we saw all year. 
it's just so full of good humor and care. And I prefer the lived in quality, like I said, and the reconciliation and redemption that comes with the end. But all the way through, you feel that genuineness. And it made me feel genuine joy on two levels. It was the joy of seeing great art being made of well-observed everyday life. And then the joy of discovery, which is what the show is all about. Because I'd heard about this for so long, and I've been waiting for so long to see it. And it was one of those that lived up to and exceeded my every expectation. It's one of those things that when you finally cross paths with it after it has been waiting for decades out there for you to find it, it leaves you with a great deal of hope because you can then imagine how many more great things are waiting to be found and to inspire you. It could have lasted 40 hours. It could still be playing as far as I'm concerned, and I would continue to watch it. Well, next for me, and I think this was probably one that you had to trim off of your list because you could only have 10, was Ruggles of Red Gap from 1935, directed by Leo McCary. And it stars Charles Lawton, Mary Boland, Charlie Ruggles, Roland Young, lantern favorite Zazu Pitts, and double lantern favorite Maud Eburn, who it seems we have been seeing so much of in these films that we've been watching lately. She's been turning up in all of these different choices that we didn't even plan on and has been setting the world on fire in every one. Well, in this case, Lawton is Marmaduke Ruggles, who is manservant to an English lord whom, while gambling, loses him to an American with more money than taste. And Ruggles finds himself transported to the rough-and-tumble American West. The hijinks that follow are a mix of mistaken identity and fish-out-of-water gags, but they are elevated by the wit of the script and especially by the performance of Charles Lawton. Ultimately, much like the upstart republic that is his new adopted home, Ruggles becomes an independent man. Everyone, I should say, not just Lawton, in this is at the top of their comedic game. This is one of those that I found myself repeatedly thinking, how have I not seen this before? Because it seems like it's so much in my wheelhouse. It was one of those that was really hard to get for a long time. Is that right? It cycled in and out of print, and for a long time it wasn't on DVD. It was only a VHS title. It's a lot easier now, though, you're right, because there is a Region 2 Blu-ray of it that is just beautiful. But so many of my favorites contribute here. McCary alone is responsible for Duck Soup, Six of a Kind, and The Awful Truth. Walter DeLeon wrote Tilly and Gus. With this many tangential connections to the Marx Brothers and W.C. Fields, it's already a guaranteed lock for me, it feels like. It's truly witty, like I mentioned, and Lawton, in a rare case, I think, shows a generosity of spirit to his acting partners that he doesn't always show. He can be a bit of a scenery chewer, a bit of a ham, kind of an overbearing presence on screen, but this time, no. And Charlie Ruckles, for me, can be really hit or miss, but I liked him a lot in this. I think that he really served the character well. And Mary Boland is never a slouch, and she is a lot of fun here. The thing you mentioned about the struggle to find it, it makes me really thankful. This is one of those choices that I like to use to underline. There are some companies that are going back in the vaults and saving these films from relative obscurity that I'm super thankful for. Anytime someone takes the trouble to restore these, upgrade them, make them available for home viewing in these pristine editions is fantastic. And it's not like this was a small film, a film that should have been easily lost. It was nominated for Best Picture. Lawton won the New York Film Critics Circle Award for his performance in it. It was on everyone's top 10 list that year, and it's in the National Film Registry now. And yet, unless you go around in hardcore cinephile circles like we do, you never hear anyone talking about it. 
And it's a shame because it's one of the funniest films of the 30s and easily deserves to be mentioned in the same breath as The Thin Man, Bringing Up Baby, It Happened One Night, and other films that are just as well regarded. Now it's my turn to go over that 10 film series I mentioned before. (laughs) A little bit of an intro here. I have slagged off Anne Southern on at least two occasions in this podcast. You dirty dog. I am. One of those was in last year's Ants in the Pants episode. So when I saw that the kickoff film in this series, the Maisie series, running from 1939 to 1947, was showing on TCM, I begrudgingly gave it a try as if I was doing Ann Southern a favor. And now it is time for me to issue my formal apology. I stand corrected. At least in this series and in this character, the unsinkable entertainer Maisie Revere, Anne Southern found her calling. In reviewing one of the entries in the series, Swing Shift Maisie, which is one of my top three, I'll get to that in just a second, (laughs) Time Magazine praised Anne Southern and described her as one of the smartest comedians in the business, and I completely agree. So are you going to rank all of these Maisie films for us, one through ten, since you might as well go all the way on this? I'm not. I'm going to restrain myself, okay. but I'm going to hit a couple of highlights. Okay. Now, I'm not going into a lot of credits here with this because different directors directed entries in the series. Edwin L. Marin, who we just saw who directed A Christmas Carol, he directed a number of the entries, but of course not all of them. Maisie is based on a character created by Wilson Collison, and he also contributed to some of the screenplays along with Mary C. McCall Jr. She did quite a bit. Now, when you're talking about a series with 10 entries, often you deal with diminishing returns. You watched all 10. Are you saying the rating here is good to great for all 10? Were there any duds in the program? I was concerned about that as well, because you very kindly found this collection for me. The 10 films are spread through two box sets, and you actually got me films 5 through 10 first. And so I started there thinking, eh, this probably won't be as fun as Maisie, the first film. And I was really pleasantly surprised to be completely incorrect. Now, I only saw one of these 10, and I saw the very last one in the series, and I was thoroughly entertained by what I saw. My favorites are the first, Maisie, the third, Gold Rush Maisie, and the seventh, Swing Shift Maisie. How could you not love the girl uh, that those titles are about? Absolutely, and especially in Swing Shift Maisie, Maisie leaves show business behind her and does her part for the war effort, and she exposes a gold-bricking female con artist. It is awesome. I love most that Anne Southern continued to get better and actually get even meatier scenes further along the series, demonstrating her ability to be tough, never cynical, and always ready to stand up for herself and help others. She will never step over another person to get ahead. You talked about that inspiration that we got from the Marseille trilogy. This also gave me that similar sense of goodwill. Maisie, the series as a whole, presents a view of working people, albeit a Hollywood version of that, but one because of the time where people were very much thrown together. So you see the best and the worst in people, and you understand what it is to earn $10 a week. So my final note on this is don't be afraid to dip in and dip out. There's not a specific continuity arc of story. But if you want to start at the beginning and see how great it can get, go for it. 
I'm going to jump us ahead for my next selection to 1950 1972. 1950 is when the film was actually made. 1972, it finally saw an official release. And that film is another experimental short. It is Rabbit's Moon by Kenneth Anger, one of my favorite provocateurs and gossip mongers. Reading one of his books when I was about seven years old is where I learned about phantom limbs. And that's all I'm going to say about that. We have a lot to thank Kenneth Anger for. Most of it absolute fiction. This film is his take on the Commedia dell'arte form, and it stars Claude Revenant, Andre Subiran, and Nadine Valence. The form itself is centuries old, and this is a variation on the classic love triangle that it often explores. Pierrot, the sad clown, pines for the beautiful Columbina while dealing with the interference of his rival Harlequin. This Pierrot is also captivated by the moon, repeatedly leaping up to try to catch it, reaching out longingly for it. There's not a lot new to add to this story that has now been played thousands of times over hundreds of years. But put simply, I find this version captivatingly beautiful just to look at. It's so aesthetically pleasing. It's shot through a lovely blue filter that casts a lunar glow over everything. The sets, borrowed from Jean-Pierre Melville, are simple but effective. And my favorite touch that I attribute solely to anger is the inclusion of a perfectly curated soundtrack of 50s and 60s pop songs. In particular, I Only Have Eyes For You by The Flamingos. That sequence does one of my favorite things when juxtaposing art forms. Each one elevates the other. It's a beautiful piece of film, and the song, if you've ever heard it before, you know, is immaculately constructed and performed. And putting them together makes me appreciate each one of them a little more and in a little different way. This one is available as part of, and no relation to us, Kenneth Anger's Magic Lantern Cycle, and that set is available from the BFI. And if you like experimental film, again, another set I highly recommend. I'm going to take us backwards just a bit to 1945 with I Know Where I'm Going, directed by Powell and Pressburger, or The Archers, and that's Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. This is a wartime romance with Wendy Hiller and Roger Livesey. Joan Webster, played by Wendy Hiller, is a young, ambitious go-getter setting out to marry her very rich boss on the remote Hebridean island of Killoran. Bad weather derails her plan, and she is thrown together with Torquil McNeil, who is on shore leave to visit his home. I think Joan is a character we don't see enough of in films, and it's wonderful to watch everyone set out to live their lives as they see fit. Wendy Hiller is charming as hell, Roger Livesey is magnetic as hell, and it is a hell of a lot of fun. This may be my favorite Powell and Pressburger. It's very close. It probably changes. There's a one, two, three at the top that rotate depending on how I feel that day. But Wendy Hiller is the thing that when I put this at the top, pushes it over the top for me. She's so smart and strong and funny. One of those roles, like you mentioned, that we don't see enough of. And I'm also noticing, I think this may be the first year that we've seen this much of each other's list. You've seen everything on my list. And I've seen all but one on yours. It's true. And you had already seen this and I'd been planning for a while, but hadn't quite gotten there and then just decided, what the heck, I'm going to put this one in. I watched it that day. I watched it again that night and I watched it again a week later. It's incredibly romantic in the best possible sense. 
and extremely unique, like all Pal and Pressburger. As a decided counterpoint to that, my next film is The Lineup from 1958, directed by Don Siegel. This one stars Eli Wallach, Robert Keith, and Richard Jekyll, and it's a feature-length expansion of a television series, sort of the inverse of The Naked City, which was first a film, then became a successful TV show. This particular feature is about a ring of drug smugglers using tourists to unwittingly bring heroin into the U.S. from Asia. I watched this with you and was on the edge of my seat, and I completely forgot that that was the plot. (laughs) Well, things go awry, as they often do with these, because bad men make even worse decisions. It has two qualities that I really like about these minor noir procedurals. One, I love the San Francisco backdrops. I think the best crime films are often inextricable from their location. The aforementioned Naked City in New York, Panic in the Streets in New Orleans, The Big Sleep in Los Angeles. These cities all imprint their own character on these stories, and this is definitely the case with San Francisco in this one. We have scenes of the Embarcadero, Sutro's Museum, the Whittier Mansion. You get a real sense of the city. And two... The noir life is nasty, brutish, and short, most exemplified by Eli Wallach basically kicking a man in a wheelchair off of a balcony to his death. Yeah, that's the stuff that I remember. It's a savage act of self-preservation that immediately moves to the top of the most memorable film noir moments that I have ever seen. It's a shocking moment and, of course, marks a point of no return. If you want a tight, muscular, and mean B-noir film, look no further than the lineup. I'm going to keep it firmly in noir, brutish, nasty territory with The Prowler from 1951. Let's add super creepy to that, too. I think I say the word creepy about four more times in the next couple of minutes, so hang on. This was directed by Joseph Losey with Van Heflin and Evelyn Keyes and written by Dalton Trumbo. We came directly to this from the great Eddie Muller, so thank you so much for finding and preserving this. Well, the restoration was done under the auspices of the UCLA Film and Television Archive, which is responsible for a number of our favorites being saved from obscurity and made to look better than they've ever looked. Among those titles being things we've either briefly mentioned or talked about at length on the show, Killer of Sheep, Barbara Loden's Wanda, The Exiles, and even films that haven't received a wide release yet that I cannot wait to see, like Bless Their Little Hearts. I am so grateful that I got to see this. Webb Garwood is the world's creepiest cop who becomes obsessed with Susan Gilvray when called to her home to investigate a prowler. Her husband works the night shift, and they begin a relationship, and that's just the beginning. This is a warped, frightening, deeply violent, and angry character, and Van Heflin is creepy as hell. Evelyn Keyes is, of course, always wonderful, and one of my favorite Dark City dames. Thank you, Eddie. She is the standout for me. As strong as his performance is, to me, it hinges completely on her. She is entirely believable as a woman who doesn't quite know the extent to which she has been gaslighted. And I am still not convinced that Webb isn't the prowler of the title. This is one of those that I would recommend if you like that vein of hard-boiled writing that exposes that seamy underbelly like Jim Thompson and James Elroy. It is right in that school. Again, I'm going to turn us about 180 degrees for my next choice, which is the Hourglass Sanatorium from 1973. 
directed by Wojciech Jerzy Haas. You know how I said that the Starfish might be the oddest film on my list? I spoke too soon, I think. This stars Jan Nowicki, Thaddeus Conrad, and Helena Kowalska, and it is about a young man named Joseph who takes a trip to visit his father in a decaying sanitarium. It quickly becomes a reverie of sorts in which he revisits abstracted episodes from his childhood, and more than anything for me, the reason this made the list is because it is a triumph of everything, including the kitchen sink production design. This was one of those that was just barely edged off of my list as well. It reminded me a lot of the same sensation I got when watching Fanny and Alexander. That same idea of returning to these warm places in childhood. As you mentioned, it looks beautiful, it's incredibly fun and interesting, and it plays with time in a way that I haven't seen in another film. I loved the atmosphere, but it didn't seem as inviting to me, I think, as it did to you. It seemed more like a cross between Edward Gorey's West Wing and Tom Waits's Attic. Which, now that I say that, seem like pretty inviting places. I was gonna say, that seems like uh, what you must dream about most of the time, I would say. Yeah, ultimately, I guess, in retrospect, to be surrounded by bird cages, mannequin pieces, uniforms, antique bottles that could either be poison or medicine. The village whore. Broken umbrellas, bodkins, copper pots, just about anything you can think of. It feels like there are a million secret histories tucked into every nook and cranny of the frame. And I suspect that if I was better versed in Polish history, I would get a lot more out of the viewing. Because there have to be nods and references all over the place that I'm not catching that would enrich that experience tenfold. It reminds me of James Joyce's Ulysses is actually what I thought of, in that it could come with a volume of annotations that is just as sizable as the text itself. And I would gladly dig into that whole thing also. This is part of the first volume of Masterpieces of Polish Cinema that was curated by Martin Scorsese and released in the U.S. by our friends at Milestone. I am coveting volumes two and three after what I've seen in this first box, but they are, again, sadly out of print and fetching definite collector's prices. But if you can afford that, they are gold for lovers of international cinema. Well, I'm going to flip us one more time as well, and that is to 1954 with A Star is Born. Directed by George Cukor, with Judy Garland and James Mason. Now the focus of this list is films that we have never seen before, that are discoveries for us this year. How in the world have you gone this long without seeing A Star is Born? You know, I think this turned out to be the year of Judy Garland for me. I've been a fan for a really long time, but there were certain holes in what I had seen. And then we went to one of the AFS History of Television Nights. This was programmed by our friend, friend of the show, Rebecca Beagle. And she focused on the Judy Garland TV show. I was so emotionally overwhelmed after that experience that I really wanted to dig into those things that I had not gotten around to, A Star is Born being one of those. I've also been aware for a long time that sections of the film are completely missing, and so I was a little bit wary of digging into something I wasn't sure how that would look. It has been restored and it looks wonderful, and production stills have been used at those points in the actual film itself, which is not as bad as it might sound. So stick with it. This is the second of the three, so far, iterations of this story. We have verging on has-been alcoholic matinee idol Norman Maine, 
who discovers Esther Blodgett and is instrumental in her well-earned rise to fame. They marry and then struggle against Norman's alcoholism, and as her star begins to eclipse his, this becomes their doom. Now in this, isn't there a whole lot of subtext going on as far as Judy Garland's personal life and the things that were done to elicit specific aspects of the performance? I think you could definitely spend a lot of time going through that, even though the story had been around for a while. Regardless of anyone's personal issues that may have been happening, Judy is allowed to exhibit her extensive range. James Mason I've always been a fan of. He is wonderful as a man trying and failing to be someone he is not for the sake of another and for his own well-being. This features, of course, the haunting and unforgettable performance of The Man That Got Away. I think Judy did about 26 takes of this. It is truly an epic as well, but with two human performances at the center. There is a gigantic production number that I find to be completely unnecessary, but boy did Judy play to the rafters. I prefer a private number that she does with Norman at home. What do you find unnecessary about the giant production number? What is it that puts you off about it? It was shoehorned in after most of the production was done as a way to say, well, we've got Judy, we've got to do some big number here. I think it's also overly long, and if you're paying attention, you don't need it. I also just enjoy Judy as an actress, and there's a great scene where she's talking about how angry she is with Norman and how angry she is that he is failing. So if you're like me, you're a big fan, but there's this big gaping hole, please check this one out. A little more cinematic whiplash for you, because my next selection is Bohachi Bushido, Code of the Forgotten Eight from 1973, directed by Teruo Ishii, my favorite director of the Japanese erotic grotesque. Now, his Horrors of Malformed Men was on our Coloween list last year, and I think you were pleasantly surprised by it, or at least not as dismayed by it as much as you thought based on its title and his reputation. I definitely enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed this one too. Before you move on, though, I'm really intrigued. Are there... A lot of films in the erotic grotesque genre? You're talking about Japan, and there are more of these than you can shake a stick at, if that's your idea of a good time. It has its own separate subgenre, basically, called Eroguro, which goes beyond even film. It has antecedents in literature. It started around the 1930s in Japan, but it certainly came into full flower in the cinema of the 60s and 70s. And Ishii is one of its foremost practitioners. This film stars Tetsuro Tamba, Goro Ibuki, and Tetsuo Endo, and it's about a ronin with a death wish who is persuaded to join forces with the unsavory Bohachi clan who are attempting to muscle in on the local prostitution trade. The genre and exploitation elements of this are all running in the red. Sword fights, naked geishas, sword fights with naked geishas, a lurid color palette, copious gore, Traditional samurai themes are buried deep beneath these layers of flesh, but there is enough of this struggle to maintain honor and even maintain the will to live in the lead character's case to give some gravity to the outrageousness of it all. Any self-seriousness, though, never has to worry about becoming too ponderous because, look, here are 40 boobs all at once. Yeah, that's the part that I remember as well. 
My favorite thing about Ishii, no matter how much mileage you may get out of his particular vision, he is never coasting. I would not be surprised to find that he has eight arms considering how much he is constantly throwing at the wall. Fortunately, most of it sticks for one unsavory reason or another. I think unsavory may be a good watchword for our next selection. This is our final shared selection, and that's Dry Summer from 1963. I'm going to apologize in advance. This is a Turkish film, and I know I will be butchering names, but here goes. It was co-produced, co-written, and directed by Mateen Erksen, based on a novel by Nakati Kumali, with Ulvi Dogan, Errol Toss, and Julia Kosijit. We are definitely back in the world of creepy with the story of a tobacco farmer who dams a river to irrigate his own property and ruin his neighbors and competitors, all while terrorizing his brother's wife and plotting to have her by any means, including the ruination of his own brother. This is the Turkish update of the mustache-twirling, tie-the-girl-to-the-railroad-tracks brand of melodrama. Errol Toss is probably my favorite villain that we encountered all year. He is so unrepentantly selfish, manipulative, and cruel. He subjects his neighbors, I would say friends, but he has no friends, to numerous indignities and suffering. He sacrifices his own brother to save his miserable skin. He is truly terrible, belonging on the Mount Rushmore of world cinema bad guys. I think what was so striking for the both of us was this incredible camera work. It's all about triangles, constantly, the use of threes, how one person who is constantly trying to assert their position and power can make themselves heard. There is never a moment of stillness. Whereas in other selections, I talked about watching communities and neighbors come together, especially those who are in the same boat. This is all about the born snake destroying absolutely everything, including his own world, because he's not smart enough or good enough not to. I was really struck also by this thing you mentioned about how surprisingly assured this film is in its technique. I'm always so pleased to find these examples of filmmakers with limited resources and infrastructure that can do so much with so little. Because all Erickson had in his favor was basically his own vision and determination. You'll see what I mean when you watch these tracking shots, these beautiful tracking shots through these thickets, either during moments of seduction or moments of combat. This is another one on my list that ultimately I think we have to thank Martin Scorsese for because this is on the Criterion Collection's Martin Scorsese's World Cinema Project Volume 1. Probably the best film in that set. There are others on it that are worth seeking out as well, but this was the real standout for me in that box. Next, I got to see my first Tarkovsky, and that is Mirror from 1975, directed by the aforementioned Andrei Tarkovsky. It's loosely autobiographical and incorporates poems composed and read by Tarkovsky's father, Arseny Tarkovsky, and it features Margarita Tarakova. I had a pretty singular viewing experience with this. And I think it also completely fits in very closely with the structure and what the film is trying to evoke. There were two images towards the end of the film that absolutely wrecked me. We have a young boy drinking from a milk pitcher, and the mother in the film, played by Margarita Tarakova, is asked about the baby that she's carrying. 
These combined to bring back beautiful and painful memories from a very specific point in my life, and I couldn't stop weeping. I can verify that. We went with a couple of friends of ours, and we basically had to talk amongst ourselves while you pulled yourself together, which actually didn't even happen. We just had to leave. We did. I just had to say, let's go. I can't do this anymore. And it also inspired one of our bonus episodes on overwhelming movie-going experiences. The film itself is loose and not particularly linear. How do you think it compares side-by-side to Hourglass Sanatorium? I think that's interesting. I feel like it's a little bit more concrete, I would say, though there is quite a bit of use of symbolic imagery and stream of consciousness, but it definitely feels as though we are recalling key moments in this person's life. Another interesting similarity, though, if at least in the viewing side, if I knew a bit more about Russian history, I think some things would resonate in a different way with me as well, but I took this at a very personal level. It's beautiful and haunting, and I can still remember many of Margarita Tarakova's expressions. That's how seared it is in my memory. Here is where I'm going to cheat Erica Long style and make this a sub-entry, let's say. I have a list of honorable mentions, and this is on it. There are three films on it for a very specific reason. They're all films that I have seen before, so therefore they don't qualify as discoveries. But this, Tarkovsky's The Sacrifice from 1986 and Dario Argento's Suspiria all got beautiful 4K restorations this year. Fortunately, I was able to see all three in a new theater with a beautiful new sound system as well, and they were revelatory. So it was like I had never seen them before. Suspiria in particular was deepened by the new sound mix, and there were creepy noises in corners that I was never aware of before. It looked better than ever, and you know how eye-popping it looks to start with. I saw an interesting note in the wake of this. Someone mentioned, how come Argento protagonists never just walk into a room and say, whoa, it looks incredible in here. I suppose if every room you go into in your entire life as a character looks like that, maybe it's not as striking, but someone should be making note of how rad the production design is. The two Tarkovsky films in particular I had seen back in the good old VHS days was the last time I had seen them. And it's like night and day. It's like I saw completely different movies. These restorations, for me especially, The Sacrifice, since you're talking about cinematography from Sven Nyqvist, Bergman's frequent collaborator, that thing... It's not of this earth, almost, it feels like, when you watch it. So rather than sneaking those in at the end, I'm going to piggyback my honorable mentions onto your entry right there. Is it time for my honorable mentions, too, or am I supposed to wait? You should probably hold off on those, and I can cut that part of the recording off at the end. Big jerk. <laughs> now, how about we go on to another selection of yours? That would be Remember My Name from 1978. Written and directed by Alan Rudolph with Geraldine Chaplin, Anthony Perkins, and Barry Berenson. Just released from prison, a young woman arrives in town to start a new life, but begins stalking a married construction worker for no apparent reason, turning his life upside down and terrorizing him and his wife. I was so fully drawn to this because I didn't know what would happen at any given moment and was genuinely terrified by this odd, beyond misfit person. I thought of the kid with the bike and that moment at the end when she has fully done to him what she feels was done to her, whether it was or was not, 
and then leaves because the scales are put back in balance. We've got the real-life marriage of Tony Perkins and Barry Berenson at the center of this, and I really like their physicality together as well. Geraldine Chaplin is a revelation, even from a performer I've always liked and who always surprises me, Home for the Holidays being another favorite. That's what does it for me, too, I think, when you mention Geraldine Chaplin. I never know what to expect, and I am never disappointed in anything I've ever seen. This one struck me this year a little bit like Deep End did last year. I liked it at the time, but it has grown in my estimation since then. The more I think about it and the more I reflect on it, the more space it takes up in my imagination, just because of her performance in particular. The others are good, and there is definitely that aspect of real life informing their relationship, but without her taught this could go any direction at any second performance at the center of everything, and when she shows up in the house and encounters the wife for the first time, just turns around and there she is. This stranger, after these odd things have been happening, I'm standing face to face with this woman. I still feel the shock of that when I think about it. And when she makes that joke with the knife? <laughs> oh my Some God. Joke, a pointed joke. I'm not sure how this one came to us. You just seem to find it out of the blue. Thank the old gray market for that one, because this one does not exist in a legitimately released DVD format. I can hook you guys up with sources if you need these. My next selection is one that we discussed briefly on one of our Patreon bonus episodes when we talked about our experience at Austin Film Society's annual Old School Kung Fu Weekend. And that is the mind-blowing Fists of the White Lotus from 1980, directed by Lo Lei. This event is one of the things that we look forward to most every year. Dan Halstead, who's a film programmer and rare Kung Fu print collector without peer, he brings a hand-picked selection of rare prints every year, and every year outdoes himself. This film was at the top of the list for me this time around, and it instantly rocketed into my top five kung fu films of all time. It stars Gordon Liu and was choreographed by Lau Kar Lung, so its pedigree is off the charts. You've got two superstars right there. And it's one of the best of hundreds of performances of a villain, Pai Mei. Lole is hilarious and menacing and uses every inch of his eyebrows and long white beard. Gordon Liu is in excellent form. And the thing that sets this apart for me is the way that he has to incorporate more feminine elements into his fighting style to achieve the balance and harmony necessary to defeat the villain. Embroidery boxing is a style I had never experienced before, and I really appreciated the fact that this movie valued and incorporated gentleness, fluidity, and domesticity without sacrificing any of the fun or eye-popping fight scenes. The second I walked out of the theater when I saw that, I jumped on my phone and ordered a copy and had this priority shipped to our house so we could watch it together because you didn't get to go to this one with me. When you finally got to see it after hearing me rave about it, what were your impressions? You did not overhype this. This was a fantastic experience. I love seeing, in addition to the female fighting style, that he incorporates the actual female fighters as well. Yes, he's trained by his sister-in-law throughout. Without her, there is no victory. It's unlike any other kung fu film I know, and I know a bunch of them, and I know more all the time thanks to Austin Film Society and Dan Halstead, so thanks, guys. I'm going to take us all the way to France with my next selection, and that is La Ceremonie from 1995. This is the one thing on your list that I did not see a single frame of, and I am kicking myself for it. 
I will watch it again with you. If it wasn't movie night tonight, I would say tonight, but tomorrow I'll watch it again with you. It was directed by Claude Chabrol, again, no slouch, in the directorial department, with Isabelle Huppert, Sandrine Bonner, Jacqueline Bisset, and Jean-Pierre Cassel. It's based on the novel by Ruth Rendell, which I had read a number of years ago, and so I knew a bit about what to expect. Not having seen it, but guessing from the pedigree from Chabrol in particular, this is a Hitchcockian twist and turn sort of thing? It is a bit. It's no surprise as to what's going to happen, but it is surprising how it happens and that very distinct Chabrol Hitchcock touch at the very, very, very last seconds. Sandrine Bonner is a newly hired maid for a rich countryside family, that's Bisset and Cassel. She befriends a post office clerk, played by Huppert, who encourages her to rebel against her employers. It is brutal and exacting, with surprising and shocking performances by Bonner and Huppert. You take one person who is very stupid and very mean and combine them with a person who is clearly warped by their past or possibly their birth, who has been searching for a way to move forward, by any means, again, over others. There's a making of featurette with the DVD of this, and it features an incredibly jaunty and sprightly Claude Chabrol talking about how a relationship can become fractured until that split, in his words, becomes final. Ruth Rendell also said that this version of her novel, which is A Judgment in Stone, is one of the few film adaptations of her work that she's happy with, and I can see why. I really don't want to tell you more about this okay. because I want you to see it. <laughs> don't, then. I, I want to wait. I do have one question, though, in terms of adaptation and success of that. Since you've read the book and you know how it goes, how do you rank it versus Purple Noon translation page to screen? I think the character question is interesting. In the book, we get a very real sense of time and place and how that has affected this character. And I think the translation into this version is really smart and makes so much sense. And it's as if she gains new dimensions that I think are real revelations for the story. Is that Huppert that you're talking about? That's both characters, but primarily Bonaire. Okay, I won't press you for any more then. And because this one I don't think is talked about a ton these days, I also don't want to say any more for our listening audience. Well, I just have one left. How about you? Is that where you are too? Me too. And then about 25 honorable mentions. Just kidding. Or not. My final choice is Paris is Burning from 1990, directed by Jenny Livingston. This is a documentary filmed over a few years in the late 80s, and it chronicles the ball culture of New York City and the subsets of the LGBT community that sustained it during what turned out to be a golden age of drag. The first thing you notice is that the filmmaker is smart enough to turn on the camera and then just get out of the participant's way. It's not as formal as an Errol Morris film, for instance, but Jenny Livingston similarly recognizes that people will tell you everything about themselves if you just give them the room. And that's where the gold really is in this film. It's a snapshot of a time that we'll likely never see that way again, or at least not with the same charm and honesty when you're talking about pre-social media era. The people that Livingston talks to are a cross-section of performers, organizers, and hangers-on, 
all getting ready for these fierce drag competitions. And that's the thing that's most valuable to me. It's this window into another world. And it's not just that the focus is on LGBT folks. It's mostly specifically that they are African-American and Latinx performers. So their struggles are multi-layered. Their heartfelt appeals for their legitimacy to be recognized face twice the obstacles. Their instinct to close ranks and keep this phenomenon pure and only between them is motivated by self-preservation on two fronts. And these are conversations that I would never likely be privy to in my own personal life. So I'm always glad when someone is there to turn the camera on it. And I'm especially grateful to the participants for their candor and their talent and especially their panache. Like all great documentaries, I know more about the world I live in thanks to them, and it is a richer and more entertaining world because of them. I unfortunately walked in at maybe the last 20 to 30 minutes of this, and I still haven't gone back to watch the whole thing. But what struck me the most that I found so appealing is that this world felt so community-based and unpolished to a certain degree. You Mm. mentioned panache, and they definitely have that. But it's not slick in the way that that sort of popular entertainment has become. Exactly. I think that's also one thing that appeals to me. It is punk rock. It is grassroots. It is all of those things that I identify with, even if I am not a drag performer. It's Woody Guthrie. It's three chords and the truth and a cloud of dust. It's all of that DIY. This is my art. I've got to get it out there. Very handmade in the best possible sense. What's your last one? Just coincidentally, I'm also closing with a documentary, and that is The Great Flood from 2012, written and directed by Bill Morrison. I owe the discovery of Bill Morrison all to you because he was brand new to me, so thank you so much. You are welcome. I love Bill Morrison, and I suspect in 2018 it won't be long before he makes another appearance on the show. His films combine archival material. He doesn't shoot anything fresh, typically. And he sets this to contemporary music, in this instance, with the collaboration of Bill Frizzell. The Great Flood focuses on 1927, when the Mississippi River broke its banks in over 140 places and inundated 27,000 square miles, up to a depth of 30 feet. It was the most destructive river flood in American history. Bill Morrison managed to find all of these wonderful bits of footage covering the flood, covering the exodus of the people from the flood, mainly displaced sharecroppers, and how that changed what northern cities would be. He weaves this footage together along with these interpretations by Bill Frizzell of this important American music. A lot of this footage was brand new to me, but I swear some of it seems familiar, and I think it's been used in other films like Per Lawrence's films. That's where I feel like I'm returning the favor. You exposed me to that, and in turn, I remix it and give it back to you with this. I think I was so drawn to it because just the first few seconds of this are of a beautiful map. And if it only had been that for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes of looking at this map, I still would have included this in my list. I love that we are talking about Bill Morrison to end this because it is perfect in terms of what we try to do with this show and what is important to us. We're talking about restoration, preservation. He makes these discoveries and then turns them into something even greater. 
I love the fact that the decay is celebrated in the way he arranges these things, but it really speaks to a larger need for archivists, people who are skilled in restoration. And when I think about the thrill that we get out of discovering some new film that we've never heard of, can you imagine what it would be like to literally discover a thing that no one knew existed? A treasure trove of reels that you are going to turn into something beautiful? Bill Morrison and the way he works. I love everything about it. And speaking of loving the way somebody works, I love the way you work. So let's hear those honorable mentions. Okay. In no specific order, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, Phantom Lady, Natural Selection, Desk Set, Lady Snowblood, Nightmare, and La Delante. It kills me that La Delante did not make your final 10. I know. I think you were really pulling for that one, and I just didn't quite respond to it in the way that maybe you thought I might. Now that you've seen the Marseille trilogy, do you feel differently about that one? No. I think it just highlights how much I responded to the Marseille trilogy. Gotcha. Well, that was a pretty good viewing year, I would say, altogether. If your second 10, if your alternate list is that strong, that's a pretty darn good time at the movies. Hey, thanks for taking that movie-going journey with me. You are welcome. I will do it any time. And thanks to everyone else for coming along with us as we discuss these things. And with that, we are at the end of episode 65, and we are at the end of 2017. If you want to make a New Year's resolution to support the podcast, you can do that via our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. If you would like to just send us a note, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to say a quick thank you to everyone who has either shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Andy Wolverton, Matt Gasteyer, Jane Sankner, the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, and most specifically this time around, our friends Adam and Allie at the podcast So That's How It Ends. If you haven't listened to the show before, it's a podcast in two parts where they watch a movie halfway through, and then try to guess where it's going to go for the second half. If you have ever been watching a film and thought to yourself, where in the world can this be going? This is the show for you because that's the question they pose week in and week out. Hey, Cole. Yeah. Shut up. (laughs) That was for you, Allie. Allie did mention specifically that her favorite moment on the show so far is when Erica told me to shut up during the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory episode. So there's a dedication. Really, Adam and Allie are some of the sweetest, funniest people we know. Go check out their show. You can find it on Apple Podcasts and just about any podcatcher you use, the same as us. I do want to also say a quick thank you to the anonymous person that left us a new five-star rating. We appreciate that. If you want to do the same, we would certainly appreciate it. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>